Well, as you're visiting churches over these first couple of weeks, maybe even months, or even a year for some of you, what are your expectations for a local church? What are you looking for in a local church? What are you looking for? Are you looking for a church to provide great community with other students that you can relate to? Are you looking for an engaging speaker to teach on those hot topics that captivate you and that are relevant to everything that's going on in the world? Or maybe you're looking for a place with passionate passionate music that's going to evoke your emotions so that you have a true worship experience every single Sunday, Sunday in, Sunday out. But the question is, would those expectations actually be the expectations of God in his understanding with the local church and what he has called the local church to be and to do. I think a better question that we need to be asking ourselves as we're visiting local churches is what God tells us the local church is and what the local church is supposed to be doing and then letting that inform our decision on where we end up landing as far as churches go. And so we're going to look at some of those expectations this morning that God has and he has given and he's called the local church to be and to do. And so this morning, we're beginning our series on the mission of the church. History isn't aimless. It is going somewhere. History is going somewhere, and it's headed toward a a large gathering of people of all nations surrounded around God's throne, giving worship to him. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, right? That's where we're headed. History's not aimless. We're going somewhere. That's the goal. And this morning, we're going to focus on how the local church is actually central to God's mission of bringing about a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around his throne, giving worship to him. We're going to see how the local church is central to God's plan of salvation for all nations. Ultimately, the mission of the church is the mission of God. That's what it is. The mission of the church is the mission of God, and that should inform our view and our expectations of what we look for in a church, which raises the question. If we're thinking about the mission of the church, Then we have to naturally ask, well, what even is a church? What is a church? Point number one, what is a church? Now, on the slide, I know that's pretty jacked up looking, but no worries, because normally whenever we do our handout, we did a split thing and you did like a fold or whatever. We just stuck it all up there. But on the right is point one. Whenever he flips to the next page, you'll have point two and three. The left side is really just other recommended reading and our teaching schedule, which is only through next week, so... Uh, We do have a teaching schedule for the rest of the semester, uh, but I only put that one up there uh, just for this series. So that is point one, what is a church? And so before we can understand what the mission is, we've got to know what the church is and what Jesus has actually authorized the church to do. What has he authorized the church to do? And by the church, I'm speaking specifically about the local church. And the reason I want to make that clarification is because some will wrongly say that since they're a part of a universal church, which means Christians everywhere, then I don't really have to be a part of a local church. However, that's an oxymoron. What's an oxymoron? Anybody know? Oxymoron. Do you all know that term? Contradictory statement. Okay, so like deafening silence is an oxymoron. Why? Because silence can't technically be deafening because it already is silent. Does that make sense? That's an oxymoron. Well, saying that you're a part of the universal church without being a part of a local church, that would be an oxymoron statement, according to the Bible. As writer John Nielsen puts it, the local church doesn't belong to a completely different category than the universal church, 
The local church is a localized, and it's an organized body manifestation of the universal church, which means that we can't obey the Bible's instructions about life in the universal church unless we live them out in the context of a local church. Not a separate category, but one is up under the other. When the universal church saw many conversions early on, right, as the church was being launched, when the, when the universal church saw many conversions in the Greco-Roman world after the time of Christ, they began to gather in localized places. So, for instance, right, if we were just going to say, I'm just a part of the universal church, well then, you know, and if there's like one kind of, like somebody's got to meet, right, because part of church is gathering, well, the folks over in Philippi, it's not like, well, the one church over here in Ephesus, i got to you know, go over here to Ephesus in order to be a part of that church. Well, instead, the local church are localized churches in specific areas, specific regions. You see this with Paul's letters. He's writing to the church in Philippi. That is, those who are part of the universal church localized and gathered in Philippi. Right? So the Christians there are gathering in Philippi. They don't have to go over to Ephesus in order to gather just to be a part of the universal church. So what is a church? You've got the definition right there. What is a church? It's a gathering of Christians that regularly meet together. And we're going to break this down into a couple of points. So it's a gathering of Christians that regularly meet together. Not only that, it's where the word, God's word, is rightly preached. Emphasis on rightly preached. It can be wrongly preached, and so it needs to be rightly preached. And where baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly practiced. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly practiced. All right, so let's break that down. Point one, the church is a regular gathering of Christians. Now, you may have heard that the church is a people and not a place, much like Thor at the end of Thor Ragnarok, right? What is Asgard? Asgard is a people, okay? Well, that's true, right? A church is ultimately... A people. However, those people have to meet in a particular place, right? They gather in a place in order to meet. And notice that this gathering of Christians, right, this, this is a gathering of Christians and not non-Christians. That doesn't mean that non-Christians aren't allowed in. I mean, most certainly non-Christians are allowed in. But in terms of being a part of that number of that church, that's for specifically Christians, And so the preaching of God's word on Sunday morning is primarily aimed at equipping Christians. That's what it's all about. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, when he's speaking to Timothy about preaching the word to God's people in the church of Ephesus. He says this about Timothy's job there. He says that Timothy's job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain spiritual maturity. That's what his work is about. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Second thing that we notice, not only is it a a gathering of people that meet regularly, second thing is that the church is a place where God's word is rightly preached. So in the beginning, God speaks and he creates everything out of nothing by his word. So also God creates new spiritual life within us by what? By his word. That's how he does that. The spirit taking the word and causing us to come alive to the truths of scripture, to God's truth. And so as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 17, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. 
So you've got to hear the message about Christ, the gospel, in order to be made new, to be made alive, spiritually alive. This is why Pastor Brad, lead pastor here, he's not preaching this Sunday, we'll preach next Sunday. That's why he preaches expositional sermons. Okay? Now I know that that word's like, gosh, man, I already want to take a vacation right now. And I've not even started classes yet. Okay? Expositional is very simple. Okay? Don't overthink this. It just means that the point of the text is the point of the sermon right, applied to the hearer, to you all, to me. That's all that that means. Right? It's called expository preaching, not suppository preaching. Okay? Let's just get that right. Sometimes, yeah, I've heard that before. All right. So that's what he's doing. The point of the text is the point of the sermon applied to the hearer, applied to you and I. God's word is foundational for the local church. As Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church of the living God is a pillar and it's a buttress of the truth. That's what the church is. It is a pillar. It is a buttress of the truth. The church, that means that the church upholds and it actually defends God's word. That's what that's getting at. And so the word preached on Sunday morning isn't for our entertainment, as if the pastor is a performer, right? As if I've got to be up here and I've got to like entertain you this morning, or if John's got to be up there entertaining everyone. He's not a performer. That's not what it's about. It's not self-help, right? As if it's all about us. That is like 10 ways to ensure success in college this morning. Let me give you 10 spiritual ways to ensure your success for the next four years of your life. That's not what it's about. It's not a self-help talk. No, the word is to be preached because it conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it's to be. The word is to be preached because it conforms us to the likeness of Christ, even when it isn't always what we might want to hear. Right? The word is going to confront us, and that's what God is doing. The Spirit takes it, and that's part of the Spirit's role, is to convict you, whether of sin or maybe of ways that we have been living in a way that is contrary to Scripture. The Spirit convicts. Number three, the church is a place where baptism in the Lord's Supper is rightly practiced. Baptism in the Lord's Supper don't save us. Just because you've been baptized, right, that didn't ultimately save you because you got dunked in water. It doesn't save you. Instead, they are visual pictures of the gospel. This is where people, whenever we sit in on Sunday mornings and we see somebody baptized, we are literally seeing the gospel on display. When we take Lord's Supper together, we're seeing the gospel on display as we renew that covenant, right, those promises that we seek to uphold to one another as Christians. These are visual pictures of the gospel, pictures that affirm that we belong to Christ. This is why I tell students who become members here that one of the most helpful things to your assurance of salvation is that you're even a member here. Now, I'm not saying that becoming a member saves you. That's not what I'm saying. That would be anti-Bible. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that God has so worked the local church in you coming into the local church that the church gives affirmation that you do belong to Jesus, meaning that you understand the gospel, right? You understand the gospel. They've heard your testimony of how you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. And so one of the greatest ways to know if you're a believer or not is to have the local church in your life affirming that. And one of those ways is coming into the local church through membership. So God's word, it creates us as a people, and baptism in the Lord's Supper actually marks us off as his people. That's what it does. It marks us off as his people, saying that we belong to him. And ordinarily, 
this is going to happen. Baptism in the Lord's Supper is going to happen in the local church. Okay? It's going to happen in the local church rather than summer camps or other campus ministries. It needs to happen in the local church. Why? Because God gave it to the local church to practice it. Okay? Understand, that doesn't mean that there aren't special case, cases right here. Okay? The mission field where there is no church. Okay? The church at that point is the, per, the one person dunking that other person, baptizing that other person they have now formed and constituted as a church. There are special cases. Okay? But in the land that we live in right now, there aren't really many special cases because there are local churches around. All right, so we've seen what a local church is. What is it not? What is it not? Number one, the church isn't just where two or three Christians are gathered together. It's not just where two or three are gathered in my name. So, for example, think about that on-campus Bible study. Think about that campus Bible study, that accountability group, that campus ministry that meets on campus that you might go to. They can be helpful tools in growing in Christ, but ultimately they're not a church. Number two, the church isn't here just to meet our needs. As I chat with students more and more, it's become clear to me that many believe the church is here to meet a need in their life. Now, that's not altogether wrong, but so many think that the church is just here to meet our needs. That's what it's to do. Whether that's an emotional need by having passionate music that stirs one's emotions, maybe that's a motivational need, right? I need that talk in order to move me to action, to keep me going throughout the semester, or maybe it's a relational need, as if the church is to provide great community and give you a lifelong friendships. And see, the type, this type of thinking, when students are looking for churches, it's common. And I don't think it's necessarily altogether wrong, but I think the emphasis is in the wrong place. We often judge by these standards. Now, music and community are not wrong in and of themselves. And in fact, they're actually really important. Community, other Christians walking with you, is extremely important. Music, a way of giving worship to the Lord, is extremely important. And yet the church does care also about the needs of the people. And we certainly meet needs, but that's not ultimately the church's primary job. Nor should it be the primary indicator to what we look for in a church. It shouldn't be the primary indicator. Rather, we need to ask ourselves that this church, very simply, rightly handles God's word, where it, can feed, where it can feed their people the deep truths of God? And is this church rightly, pra rightly practicing baptism in the Lord's Supper? And are there clear areas in this church that we can serve in the body? It's very simple. Asking those things with the emphasis on the adverb, rightly. Are they rightly seeking to do that? Those are the questions we need to be asking when we visit. So we've looked at what a church is. But what is it called to do? That's point number two. What is the church called to do? The mission or the purpose of the church is really summed up in the commission of Christ in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You should have it on the screen behind me uh, of the text. Can someone read that? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It's what is known as the Great Commission, Commission of Christ. All right. Okay, so this mission that Jesus gives his disciples is based solely on his own authority. He's got all authority, what? In heaven and in, on earth. 
and it's based solely upon that authority. And so in verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives, uh, he gives one command. And what is that command? Anybody know what that command is? It looks like there's a lot of commands, but there's really one command. What would be that one command in verses 19 and 20? Okay, keep going. Make disciples, okay? That's the first one. That's the command. It's to make disciples. Now, he gives three other verbs right there, such as go, baptizing, and teaching. He gives three other verbs that are entailed in that disciple-making process, meaning like what does disciple-making look like? Matthew 28, all those three other verbs, going, teaching, baptizing, well, baptizing and then teaching, okay? That's what it looks like. That's what's entailed. So I want to look at each of those quickly, very quickly. So the first one, let's take the command, make disciples, of all nations. What is a disciple? Someone are going to come up to you and be like, hey, what's a disciple of Jesus? What would you say? What's a disciple? Make it simple. Yeah, follow. Somebody else said follow. Who else said that? Raise the hand. Excellent. No need to be shy. All right. So yes, it means to follow somebody, right? So a disciple is a learner. Learners followed teachers. And so a disciple is one who follows Jesus, right? They seek to learn from Jesus. So Jesus has commanded his followers to go to all nations and to make more followers, okay? That's what we're to do. What does that look like? Secondly, go. We can't make a disciple unless we go. And going implies being sent by someone. Jesus sends out his disciples to make disciples. Third, baptizing. When we go and those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, they need to be baptized. It means baptizing. Baptism is an outward picture of the new life that God creates within someone. That's what baptism is. It's an outward picture of that new life that God has created. And as we see in the book of Acts in chapter 2, verse 41, those who receive the word of the gospel, Acts 2, 41 is important. Those who receive the word of the gospel are then what? They are baptized, and then they are what? They are added to that number. That is that number of Christians that gather together in that local church. Uh, they are being planted in Acts. But who is it that does the baptizing and the teaching? It's local churches, as we just saw, as I just talked about. It's local churches. In Matthew, uh, and we can't read, ultimately, we can't read Matthew 28, the Great Commission, without first understanding Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. We can't read those in isolation from one another. We must understand Matthew 16 and 18 in order to rightly grasp Matthew 28. So in Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter and the apostles the authority to affirm whether someone knows the gospel and whether that gospel is reflected in their lives just as Jesus did with Peter in that same passage. What did he say? What did Peter say in, in uh, Matthew 16 to Jesus? Surely you are the Son of God, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that by saying that you are right, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, okay? He's affirming that. And so, as we're gonna see in Matthew 18, Jesus then gives that authority that he gave to Peter and the apostles. He gives that authority to the local church, and that relates, all of that relates to Matthew 28 because the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth is actually given the local church the authority to affirm whether someone has truly professed faith in Christ or not. And so the church is the one that makes clear who is and who isn't a disciple of Jesus through baptism into the membership of the church as we saw in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 41. 
So not only are they to baptize, they're also to teach those that they baptize. So the second thing that we notice is teaching. Local churches to teach. Jesus wants more than just decisions to follow him. He wants disciples who are obedient and mature in the faith. They're to obey all that Christ has commanded, which means that they need to learn about all that he commanded. That's what a disciple does. It's a, he's a learner. She's a learner. And so they learn about all that Christ has committed. I like how one pastor put it. He says that Jesus didn't intend for churches to work like the Department of Motor Vehicles, meaning the DMV. Where you go and you get your license. Jesus didn't intend for churches to work like the DMV. You go in, you get your driver's license, and now you've got the ability to drive wherever you want. They give you the responsibility, and then you're on your own. As if Jesus said, go, make converts, give them the license of baptism, and then just let them go. They're on their own now. That's not what he did, right? No, instead he's given gifts to the church, such as pastors and teachers, to be able to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to teach them to obey all he commanded. It's called to baptize and then to teach. Not decisions, but disciples. And this is a reminder that God has given the local church to be the main vehicle, not only of evangelizing the world, but also of discipling all of God's people. That's what he's given the local church to do. And so as Paul says, uh, through the local church and their leadership in Ephesians 4.12, that they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what is the mission of the church? What is it called to do? Here's the definition that we have been waiting for. The definition of the mission of the church I think is helpful. In two books I'm going to hand out, one of those definitions is in here, and it's super helpful. So this is the definition. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and then gathering these disciples into churches that they may worship the Lord and obey his commands. I almost lost my spot. And obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God. That's what the mission of the church is. That's what the church should be doing. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. The apostles sought to primarily fulfill the Great Commission through local churches. And that's what the whole book of Acts is about. If you go sit down and you read the book of Acts, it's a whole lot of church planting. Church planting, church planting all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, or the Roman Empire. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, they are sent out of the church at Antioch, and they go out proclaiming the gospel. Those that receive the gospel are then gathered into churches. And as Paul and Barnabas are returning to Antioch, what do they do? They strengthen those churches that they just planted. What do they do? In strengthening those churches, they appoint elders. Elders are just another word for pastors in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what they're to do. After their journey, they go back to Antioch and they report about all that God has done in planting those churches. There's something else here to notice. Something else to notice with all of this. It's that the mission of the church is primarily spiritual. It's primarily spiritual. As one pastor put it, the church cares about all suffering. All suffering. Especially eternal suffering. Lest we have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. The church cares about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The mission of the church isn't first and foremost about necessarily digging a well building a playground in a community, or even providing tutoring opportunities to the community. That's not what it's first and foremost about, though you can use that as a means and as a vehicle through which to proclaim the gospel to the community, but that's not ultimately what it's about. 
the church is called to fulfill a uniquely spiritual mission to guard the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and disciple those who respond to the gospel. That's what it's about. And the message that we guard and that we proclaim is that God created us in his likeness, right, to live in obedience to him, in joy-filled relationship to him, and yet, what did we do? We sinned against God. We rebelled against God and rejected him. And because of that sin against God, we are now separated or alienated from God and no longer have that relationship with him. And yet, in God's mercy and his love, he sends Jesus to come and to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin against him. By dying on the cross, rising three days later, he conquers over death and sin. And for all of those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are reconciled to God, and they can have eternal life. That's the message we proclaim. It's the gospel. That's what the church ought to be proclaiming. This is the gospel that the church guards and it proclaims and it equips the saints for the work of ministry. So in one sense, the Great Commission is given to individual Christians. But it's Christians actually through local churches that the mission is accomplished. It's got to go through the local church. And how does a church do this? I just want to give us four ways a church can go about doing this um, biblically. So how does a church do this? How do we seek to fulfill the mission the Lord has given to us? Number one, by cultivating, we're on our final point. Number one, cultivating a culture of discipling. Cultivating a culture of discipling. Discipleship, discipleship is my following Jesus. That's what it is. Discipling is me helping you to follow Jesus, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Discipleship is my following Jesus. Discipling is me helping you follow Jesus. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which means that the work of ministry is done by all Christians. Jesus gave that command to both introverts and extroverts alike. Okay? And so he gave it to everybody. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, as we've already noted thousands of times already, not really literally thousands, but a lot already, is that the pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're all to be about doing this work of being a disciple who makes disciples. Everybody is. To live in obedience to Jesus, we have to be about doing that work. In the Great Commission Church, older men in the faith ought to be discipling younger men in the faith. It's the same thing for women. Older women ought to be discipling younger women in the way of the faith. Men and women of all ages and stages of life are to pursue one another in these relationships. One of the things that we want for you all is to be discipled by an older man or an older woman who's further along spiritually maybe than you are, more spiritually mature man or woman. That's what we want. So what can that look like? All right, so ladies, say you're being discipled by a stay-at-home mom with three kids, super busy, and what it looks like is like going over to her place during nap time, and you're just during those kids' nap times, not her nap time, uh, need to clarify that. Um, you go over to her place during the kids' nap times, and maybe you're just helping her with stuff around the house that she needs to get done, whatever that may look like. It could look like folding laundry. It could look like any number of things, whatever that may look like, okay? And you're going over there, and you have spiritual conversation. You begin to talk about life. You also talk about maybe what you're learning in the Word. Maybe you guys sit down, and you're already working through a book of the Bible. Maybe you read the sermon text uh, for that Sunday morning, 
And so you're just getting together, and you're just kind of working and doing various things and just chatting as you're doing that. That's what that can look like. It doesn't mean that you have to have a program in place in order to be able to be discipled and to make disciples. You don't have to have that. Jesus didn't set up a discipleship program. Rather, he gave you the local church people to be able to do that. So that's what it can look like. Fellas, that can mean uh, just grabbing a guy who's more spiritually mature than you and just going along with him as he goes to Walmart or wherever else. You can also help him out in the yard laying mulch. I like to do that, incorporate guys to help me lay mulch in my yard. That's also wonderful. Helps me get the work done a lot quicker. But that's what it can look like. Go help them do yard work on the weekend whenever they get some free time. Go with them to Kansas City if they need to go pick up furniture. I don't know, I'm just making up stuff, okay? That's what it can look like. So we cultivate a discipling culture by committing to follow Jesus and then helping others to follow Jesus. All of us ought to be doing that. And that's going to include a lot of things, such as intentionally asking questions, having spiritual conversations, praying with one another, encouraging one another. If you're in a discipling relationship and you never get encouraged, that's not great. You probably need to sit down and have a conversation with them. They ought to be able to give you encouragement. Secondly, Not only do we uh, cultivate a culture of discipling, we also cultivate a culture of evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel with the aim to persuade. And so the church is to train its members in how to share the gospel and then show them how to do it. And what I'm really getting at right there is that evangelism is caught, meaning that we see it done, and it's also taught. We ought to be, like, we need to be taught how to do it, and then we go out with somebody else showing us how to do it. It's caught and taught. This is what we call discipleship in the context of evangelism. Scheduling a lunch with a non-Christian friend and then bringing along somebody else with you and showing them how to share the gospel. Brandon Mendez, I don't think anybody knows. Most, a lot of you know him. Uh, Some of you don't, but Lord willing, you will because he's all over the place. Uh, But he is a wonderful brother that is excellent at this, at just taking people out, sharing the gospel with them because he's been just building relationships. And so he does a fantastic job at that. Success in evangelism, I think this is helpful to say, success in evangelism is not based upon whether or not the person says yes to the proclamation of the gospel coming out of your mouth. That's not what success is. What is success? It's faithfulness in just sowing the seed of the gospel. Go back to the parable of the sower, Matthew 15. He's he's just chucking seed for crying out loud. And it doesn't matter where that seed falls and what soil it falls on. It's going to fall on hard soil. It's going to fall on that soft soil, that nice soil. But ultimately, it doesn't depend. The soil doesn't depend upon him. What does he have to be faithful with? Chucking seed, right? Throwing the seed out. That's what faithfulness looks like. It's sharing the gospel, sowing the seed of the gospel. All right, number three, by working to reach the unreached. Number three, this is what really I'm talking about is, is missions right here. Missions is evangelizing and church planting across ethnic, cultural, and usually national boundaries. So no church should aim everywhere. No church should do that. (laughs) They need to be specific and strategic about where they're seeking to aim. A, A single church cannot do everything. We can't evangelize the world through UBC. We can't do it everywhere. But we can't do it in certain places, and we need to be strategic about how we seek to do that. One of the ways that we seek to do that is by partnering with member, or partnering uh, with brothers and sisters in the 1040 window, which houses the smallest percentage of Christians throughout the world. And so one brother, one pastor in a church in India is Harshit Singh. 
faithful brother who's trying to raise up other pastors to send out throughout India to plant churches to reach Indians. Another uh, brother and sister that we're seeking to support are Michael and Hannah Abraham in Dubai. If you know anything about Dubai, Dubai is a melting pot of all kinds of people, okay, coming in from all different countries. The majority of the population in Dubai are foreigners coming from people, coming from nations in the 1040 window, and they're there seeking to plant a church in order to help reach them, send them back into their countries as they return home to share the gospel. Another thing that's wise for churches to do is to pray for its missionaries. At our Sunday night service, we often set aside time to hear from our missionaries, to pray for our missionaries. In our uh, member directory, we've got a whole page dedicated to missionaries that we can begin praying through. We want our members to be praying through. We also have that page as well. Another thing that we try to promote is that iFriend program at the U of A. Have, have any of you heard of it? Okay. A lot of internationals come into the U of A. It's called an iFriend program where you can get hooked up with an international student, kind of get them to just basically ease their transition to the U.S. That's an excellent way to build friends with internationals coming from all over the world. It's an excellent way to be able to do that and to share the love of Christ with them. Lastly, final thing, planting and strengthening other churches. Point number four, planting and strengthening other churches. Churches, and I think ways that we can do this, I think churches can structure their staff in order to train up guys in order to send them out to plant churches. So currently, right, I'm being trained up in order to be sent out to plant a church in the near future. The church has set aside funds to send me out to plant a church somewhere in the near future. They're also going to send members or even other staff in order to be able to do that. And so, that's one way that we seek to do that. Not only does a church uh, have to be a church that we plant, but we can also help others in church plants that are already established. So currently we have partners seeking to plant a church in South Africa, and we just help by providing resources and funds uh, for training those pastors that they're seeking to raise up on their own. This can also look like revitalization in our area, helping struggling or dying churches by giving them pastors in order to help bring life uh, to those churches. That's what's called church revitalization. Those are just ways that we can be seeking to do that. All of those are just some of the ways that churches accomplish the mission that the Lord has given to them. It can look different for other churches, but it's going to encompass those kinds of things. And so, friends, the church is not a human idea. The church is not a human idea, but it's God's idea and it's God's work. And so we don't have to wonder if the church is going to ultimately succeed. Christ has already told us in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And even think about that picture. The gates of hell. What are gates? What are, why do you put up gates? You go to a nice housing division, they got gates. Why do they put up gates? Not only to feel prestigious or whatever, but why do they put up gates? To keep people out. <laughs> So the gates of hell is a defensive mechanism, meaning that they're on the, de the hell is on the defense, right? Satan is on the defense. And so the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It will ultimately succeed. You don't have to wonder if what we're doing is going to fail because it's already going to succeed because Christ is on the throne and he reigns. It's going to happen. It is through the local church, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, that God's manifold wisdom right? Not in a campus ministry, not in a Bible study, not in a church camp. It is through the local church that the manifold wisdom of God is put on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
That's where the action is happening. And so I just want to help you all think through some of the things to be thinking about whenever you're looking for churches and expectations that are gonna be, you're going to be setting for them. So what are you looking for in a local church? And does that align with Jesus' vision for what the church is to be doing? Helpful questions to be asking ourselves over the upcoming weeks. I want to pray for us. I'll open it up for Q&A. All right, let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that you have established the local church for our own spiritual health. And Lord, we know that maybe throughout history or even in our uh, culture and society, we can often look down at the church as a place where that's where all the hypocrites gather and recognizing that we're all hypocrites to a certain degree. And yet, Lord, you have seen fit to establish local churches as seemingly insignificant as they may be in the world's eyes. And yet you've established them to make your manifold wisdom known to the world. Lord, help us to come to a greater understanding of what the local church is to be doing so that that informs how we look at the church and when we visit the the churches that we go to over the upcoming weeks so that we may make a good decision on where we end up landing. Lord, I pray that you would give these students wisdom in that endeavor. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hey, quickly before questions, two books that are helpful at thinking about the mission of the church are Understanding the Great Commission. Um, It's part of a church basic series by Mark Dever. Super helpful. Anybody want it? I have only barely touched it with my two fingers. If you take that side, you don't have to touch it. Hey, I get it. Covizzi's real. All right, right here. Anybody want it? You don't have to feel embarrassed by raising your hand. Maybe you guys really don't want to learn about the Great Commission. Okay. Also, the second one, former pastor of mine, Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung, wrote a super helpful book on what is the mission of the church, literally. Making sense of social justice, shalom, and the Great Commission. Super helpful for our current situation. You, don't, you, have, you have this already? All right. All right, hey, any questions from you all uh, about this lesson before we close it out and we chill and hang out until 1030? Amy. What is that verse talking about? Yep, so that verse is actually talking about church discipline. Yeah, it's talking about church discipline, often a scary word uh, for many. So essentially, um, the church, it affirms gospel professions. When people come in, they affirm it. That's why I just talked about having assurance of salvation, right? You can know because whenever you come in, you get asked, hey, what is the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Tell me about how you became a believer, and then we begin to sit down with you and try to work through, how did you become a believer? How are you seeking to grow spiritually right now? So the church affirms those professions of faith. Now, if there are those in the church who over a long period of time understand that are living in unrepentant sin, that doesn't mean they commit one sin and they really goof up okay, in college and like, well, sorry, we're going to have to discipline you from the church. <laughs> That's not the case. It's someone who is living in unrepentant sin. I mean, this is a big case, but I mean, think about it. Think if someone were like embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, the church isn't just going to sit by and be like, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it. Well, no, the church needs to act. It needs to do something because that person's living in unrepentant sin. And if they don't repent, well, then the church is basically just denying the profession that they made because it wasn't a legitimate profession in the first place. Christ has instituted the local church, Matthew 18, to do just that. 
the where two or three are gathered in my name is often taken out of context, right, and used for just like, well, that's a church, we're just gathered, you know, we're doing our Bible study, we're a church. It's often taken out of its context when it's actually talking about church discipline. And so that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times, and a lot will struggle with that because they think it's judgmental, like it's, it's uh, retributive, meaning that like we're like judging them somehow for, you know, uh, disciplining that, them out of the church. Sure, we're making judgments, but those judgments are made in love that Christ told us to be doing in the first place. You can go read, Matt, you can go read Matthew 7 for that. It's super helpful. Other questions uh, from the lesson before we close it out? It's a good question. Jonah. Local church shopping. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, so you get it a little bit in this lesson. I think a lot of times, the majority of students that I talk to, uh, and I meet with them every single year, the majority of students are really looking for an experience. They're really looking for an experience in the main gathering. And so, for instance, if you don't have music that goes a certain way, it's like, ah, I think I'll pass and I'll go to the next church. It's going to give me an experience. And I don't think we see that biblically. I think what, what the church is centered around is the word of God being preached, right? And so even the wording of those songs, especially today, they can get watered down. And it's just like you're repeating this refrain. It's like, I don't even know really what this means, you know, but it's just, we just keep repeating it. And we're just singing it, but it feels great because, it, right, they give a rise in the music. makes me feel great. And I think a lot of times that can often dictate our understanding of, like, basically of where I'm going to end up. They've got great music. They've got people that all look like me. When in reality, God created lots of different kinds of people. And the way that we are able to display that diversity that foreshadows heaven one day is by having a diverse group of people. So if you come in here and you're like, man, these folks, they're all over the board personality-wise. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. So that it's not just like all frat guys hanging out on Sunday morning, you know, or all sorority sisters hanging out on Sunday morning. Um, and to be honest with you all, I'm sitting here and I may sound like, man, he seems kind of like, you know, bashing that. But the reality is that was me in college, y'all. Like I'm telling you that because that was me in college. So I've done it wrong. Um, and I'm telling you that so that you don't have to do that <laughs> on the front end. I'm trying to spare you from doing that. So on Sunday morning, I think focusing upon the word, did you get fed? Was it meaty? And maybe you're not used to a lot of meat, like, from the word. Okay, well, if you're not used to it, that's not a problem. But, like, did you get fed? And is it a place where you can get fed and equipped whenever you come back? Is the music biblically sound? Are those words rich and true that you're singing? It may not be your style, right? You may love one song from, shoot, Hillsong. I don't know. You may, you may love one song from Hillsong, and you're like, man, this little Irish dirge from Keith and Christy Getty is not that great. You know, like, I don't, it, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, the thing is, is that you're going to love one song, and you're going to be like, that was atrocious, and that was a train wreck. But the point is, there's someone else in the congregation that absolutely loves Rock of Ages, right? Augustus Top Lady, they love that stuff. And so, they're going to love that song. But I think one way to grow spiritually uh, and, and to spiritual maturity is just by saying, hey, you know what? That older sister over there, she loved that song. Praise God. That's awesome. That's great. You know what? I like this song over here. I don't really like that song, but you know, this song's great. And praise God. And so, 
you're going to get a variety of different stuff from all throughout the ages of, Christian, of church history. So I think in terms of preaching, singing, prayers are going to be a little bit longer. We don't think that just because we pray longer that somehow we're holier. That's not the case. Prayers are just, we want those to be rich. We actually want to engage God with our minds and our hearts uh, and actually pray to him in that. And so you're going to see that within the service. It's not going to be a transition. Often prayers are transitions. I'm telling you all this because I know that world. I live in it. Often prayers are transitions. Even, I mean, I kind of somewhat did that today. Let me pray in order to begin. Let me pray in order to close. That's what I'm talking about. Prayers are often transitions, and it's just kind of like, hey, we need to get people back up on stage. Let me pray a little bit and get it going, right? And I'm just telling you that because I know. I know what that's like. Just giving you the inside scoop. Um, okay. I'm going to have to close it at that because we need a roll, okay? Hey, if you have questions, my email, Alex, can you put up the uh, handout again, first page of that? So my email is right there at the bottom. I don't even know if you can see that. Uh, trichardson at ubcfayetteville.org. Email me or just talk to me after this if you've got questions. would love to meet with you, get lunch with you, um, and help you think through some of these things. Cool? Cole Pinnock, uh, one of our elders, one of our pastors alongside me here, is going to be here next week because I've got to teach in the main uh, time on discipling. He's going to be teaching in here on the second part of the mission of the church. Okay? After that, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the love of God. Uh, going there forward, which is fascinating and is often wrongly understood. Oh, it's good. All right, let me pray for us. And that's not a transition. We're legitimately going to pray, okay? Father, we give praise to you uh, just for many of these students and where they're at right now. Uh, some of them maybe not believers, some of them believers, and yet maybe be, just became a believer or seeking to grow spiritually, Lord, wherever they are at spiritually. Lord, we pray for the work of your spirit upon their hearts, that you would use our students, you would use our members to help care for them and love them and serve them well uh, and to give them your word, which gives life. And so, Lord, we pray that college would not be a spiritually fruitless time, but a spiritually fruitful time for them. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.